This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Hi, Georgie here. On this week's episode of the FemPower Health Podcast, we cover perimenopause and menopause and the associated symptoms with this stage of life, uh, such as low libido, brain fog, as well as weight gain, and many more. I interviewed Dr. Carissa, and she is the author of The Menopause Switch, and you can find a link to the book in our show notes. Before we dive in, a couple of announcements. One, a big thank you to those of you who have been providing reviews on the podcast. We definitely like to hear the feedback. And if you wanted to provide feedback directly to me, please email me at info at fempower-health.com. I'd love to hear um, feedback on the individual episodes. I'm also in the midst of planning for 2021. So if you have any topics you have in mind or questions you would like to have answered by experts, please do share that information with me. I do take it seriously because at the end of the day, this podcast is for you. And also, I do post a lot of information on Instagram about upcoming episodes, questions that I may have for each of you just to get further input. So if you have not done so, please do follow me on Instagram at FempowerHealth. Without further ado, let's dive right into the episode. It's so nice to have you today. Hey, thanks for having me. Finally, I'm seeing people talking about menopause, and it's really nice to see that you've uh, developed um, content and focus on this area for women. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into focusing on menopause. I'm a nurse practitioner. I also have a clinic um, in the Tampa Bay, Florida area that has a kind of a functional medicine approach um, towards menopause. I've been really interested in hormones for a while. Um, It kind of sparked my interest just based on some personal issues that I was going through. Um, So that, that kind of pushed me towards this. And some female-related issues that run in my family. Um, both my mother and my grandmother had hysterectomies in their 20s, which a lot of women wow. do, right? They just take it all out. You have something going on, let's just take it all out. Um, so I really had no idea what to expect, but I did notice that I had some of the same issues that they had before they had their hysterectomies, such as fibroids, fibrocystic breasts, um, things like that. So I just want to kind of wanted to educate myself on that and see what I could do to try to prevent uh, problems from becoming too big. I did start doing bioidentical hormone replacement therapy at the clinic that I worked at, um, which I now manage one of the locations. And I just find it really rewarding. There's so many women that are just really desperate uh, for help to feel better. And a lot of them want a more natural approach. Um, So that's where the book comes in. It's kind of easy for me just to hand, I'll meet with them and kind of review some things. And then I just can, 
I can hand them the book so that they can do more research on, on their own at home too. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I also have a research background. I uh, worked at the University of South Florida on some large clinical trials involving mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, in some breast cancer survivors. Um, so we are looking at um, how MBSR, what the effects are on the body as far as like cortisol, stress hormone, and some other things. Um, so that is a big part of my practice is I, I do um, promote MBSR um, and other stress management techniques because uh, I find that they're very helpful for women to help deal with any hormonal imbalances that they have. At the root of it, we women hear about menopause. We understand that it happens, but we don't know a lot about it. What would you say are some common myths that you hear about menopause when women come to you? One that you'll never feel great again, because you definitely can. Um, once you hit menopause, life is not over. Um, even if you are dealing with some of these issues, some of them are fixable. Um, you can get back to a place where you're having a good quality of life again. Um, so that, I think that's definitely one of the myths is a lot of people feel like, you know, it's over, but it's not. So you mentioned bioidentical hormones. Can you talk to us about what they are? So yeah, that can be a little bit confusing. And you're, I think people are starting to hear more and more about bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, but they don't really know what the difference is. The difference between synthetic hormones, hormones found in birth control, for example, things that most conventional medicine doctors will prescribe, um, these are not similar to your body's own hormones. Um, so bioidentical is exactly what it sounds like. They're biologically identical to your own, your hormones in your body. On a molecular level, on a much smaller level, um, they have kind of the same shape. Synthetic hormones, different shape molecule. Bioidentical hormones, um, the, sh the same shape as, as your own. So your body tends to recognize them as your own hormones. Um, so people tend to have less side effects. And also um, there's, you know, a lot of research still going on about the safety. Um, are bioidentical hormones safer than synthetic hormones? Um, I believe they are. There is some more research that needs to be uh, performed. But in my own clinical uh, practice here, I do find that women feel a lot better on bioidentical hormones versus synthetic. So hormone replacement therapy is just an umbrella term. It could cover any kind of hormone that you're replacing in the body. It could be your thyroid hormone. It could be someone who's menopausal or postmenopausal who needs more estrogen, um, progesterone, testosterone. Those are other hormones as well that fall under the bioidentical uh, hormone umbrella, um, cortisol. Um, some some people actually do um, go on a low dose cortisol if they have adrenal fatigue. Um, some women need one, some need more than one. It just kind of depends on their medical history. For most women that that I treat at the office who are no longer having periods anymore, um, who are very low in estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, most feel better when they get all three actually. Um, some are surprised when I say testosterone because you, you hear about it. You're like, that's for men, but it's not for men. It's actually a really important hormone for women as well. It's produced in our ovaries, just like estrogen and progesterone are. And um, it's an important hormone for, for energy and, and libido. Um, so I definitely 
recommend that women kind of look into that as well and not be afraid of it because just because someone's getting a little bit of testosterone doesn't mean you're going to turn into like this big beast. <laughs> a lot of women may, and I, I, I'll, I guess I'll just speak for myself. I assumed that it's mostly estrogen, but it sounds like there's a lot of hormones when it comes to menopause. So obviously these hormones are relevant throughout life, but so many people focus on the estrogen piece of menopause. So since you mentioned testosterone, I wanted to dive into one of the questions from our Facebook group because I think this is really relevant. So one shared that she's going through menopause for the last several years and has lost all interest in sex and can't even orgasm if she is having sex. And so a question is, is this normal and what can she do? And I appreciate this question because it's it's so vulnerable, but I will bet you that every woman is turning up the volume right now because they probably have the same question, but were afraid to ask or didn't know that they could ask. So we are all ears, Dr. Carissa. <laughs> this is, libido is important. I mean, it's, you know, sex is an enjoyable part, enjoyable part of life and it doesn't need to end when you're going through menopause. Um, but that is true that a lot of women um, do lose some lobi- their libido or they don't enjoy uh, intercourse as much as they did before or have a hard time achieving orgasm. Um, there's some different factors that come into play, but um, low hormones are, are one of them. And testosterone is an important hormone for libido. When you still have a menstrual cycle, then when you ovulate, you know, in the middle of your cycle, that's when your testosterone level bumps up. So your ovaries pump out some more testosterone to put you in the mood to make a baby, right? Because there's, right. there's an egg there ready to be fertilized. Um, so there's a bi- biological reason why this happens. Um, you have to be in the mood. So your ovaries pump out more testosterone to do that. Um, so when you don't have that going on anymore, then, you know, your libido drops. Um, so it does, it is a factor. Testosterone is also uh, important for maintaining muscle Um, as women go through menopause as well. Uh, There's some muscle loss that women experience and that contributes to weight gain um, because their metabolism slows down because of that. So I'm a big fan of testosterone. (laughs) Got it. So I guess a couple questions there. So one is you mentioned there could be other factors. So what besides testosterone could potentially be playing a role? Right. So other factors, um, some women find intercourse to be less enjoyable because it's sometimes painful or or uncomfortable um, because they start experiencing dryness, uh, vaginal dryness. Um, So that creates a lot of friction and also the the tissue down there also becomes a little thin as well. So it's also easily damaged. Um, So that's another reason why um, women kind of lose interest a little bit because it's just not enjoyable. It just doesn't feel as good as it did before. Um, but there are things that you can do. Um, definitely. Um, one is balancing out your hormones. There's also some vaginal creams that women can use as well to kind of restore the moisture. Um, some have DHEA in them as well. Um, that tends to be really helpful. Of course, there's always like relationship issues, you know? Yep. Yeah. The creams, are you speaking specifically about lube or are these? Um, yeah. What? Yeah. I'm not talking about lube because lube would be something that you would just use in the moment um, just mm-hmm. to kind of lubricate temporarily. But there are some 
vaginal creams that you could use regularly, um, not during intercourse, to restore um, balance, um, restore moisture. And from a bioidentical hormone replacement uh, standpoint, um, there are some, some vaginal creams that have some estrogen in them as well. Um, so sometimes I'll prescribe that uh, with a little bit of estriol. Estriol is one of your estrogens. There's a lot of different types of estrogen, estrogens in your body, um, but estriol is really great for restoring um, lubrication. So typically women will insert like a little, it kind of looks like a little pearl uh, twice a week, just kind of maintain um, moisture. One of the things that's become quite clear is just because it's marketed, <laughs> on the shelf, um, which I don't know if you can get these on the shelf, they may have to be prescription, but it doesn't always mean it's necessarily the best thing. For example, do some of these come with toxins that we should be aware of? Are all of them safe? Like what are some things that women should consider that they may not think of because the marketing is so great on the front end? <laughs> yeah. It is something, um, I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually mentioned that in the book about things that you should avoid. Um, when we eat organic food, we should probably use organic things <laughs> in, our, in our vagina as well. Um, so you want to look for, um, if you're looking for a lubricant, for example, because I was talking about bioidenticals with estriol, that would be a yep. prescription. That would be a prescription, something compounded at the pharmacy. But if you're looking for um, lubricants, then check the labels and, and there's, there's a list of ingredients that you should look out for, which I do list in my book, um, but some are also found in other products that you want to avoid, like parabens, for example, um, chlorhexidine is another one, and artificial flavors and fragrances, things like that. So you mentioned in here that menopause is not an estrogen deficiency disease because levels of estrogen only drop by 40 to 60%. And I hesitate to use the word only because that's still a lot, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. So that, because um, I think also too, when, when a woman hears like, as you age, this really important hormone just goes away, might create panic. But I, I think the way you wrote it was really interesting and compelling. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So, so I, I did mention that, you know, it's not just from estrogen. Um, and the reason why I mentioned that is because of the other hormones that come into play. Got it. Progesterone is another big one um, that needs to balance out estrogen in the body. Uh, that's why a lot of women who go on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy who are um, getting estrogen, if they still have their uterus, then they have to take progesterone um, to protect their uterus because these two hormones balance, balance each other out. Um, so you, not only are you losing your, your estrogen levels as you go through menopause, but you're losing progesterone too. And it's a very important hormone because it has a very like calming effect in the body. Um, it's, it's just a, I call it the cuddly hormone. <laughs> I love that. Um, so yeah, if, if you are prescribed it and you take it uh, by mouth, it actually works as kind of like a sleep medication too. It actually has wow. a calming effect uh, in the body. And sometimes women who are low estrogen and low progesterone and low testosterone, some women do great, you know, with just progesterone. Um, sometimes that's enough to relieve their hot flashes and, and help them feel better. Sometimes they don't even need estrogen. Um, so that's something to, to definitely keep in mind. 
Okay. And you mentioned um, a calming effect and helps you sleep better. So what happens to a woman's sleep pattern? And it may not happen in all cases, but I do hear uh, women waking up in the middle of the night or not being able to sleep. You know, tell us more about the sleep and, and what women can consider. I, w- I would say the number one reason why menopausal women are having problems sleeping is because of night sweats. Um, so a hot flash happens. A night sweat is a hot flash at night, basically. So it wakes them up and they're feeling drenched and sweaty. And then, you know, sometimes it's hard to fall back asleep. So there's that issue. And then also as your hormones shift, you know, things become imbalanced, then it, it creates anxiety often, um, makes you feel a little bit anxious. Um, so women have a hard time falling back asleep at night because they start thinking about things that they have to do, start worrying a little bit um, as well. Um, and then of course, as, as hormones shift as well, it does affect your, your um, brainwave, your sleep waves as well. So you sometimes don't go into as deep of a sleep as you normally would. So easier to wake up. So would you say then that perhaps the mindfulness-based stress reduction would be helpful? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and, and what women can do. And again, your book explains it beautifully, but just to kind of give people um, a nice summary that they can take away and then read more details about. If you still, if you don't manage stress properly and it continues for a long time, chronic stress, um, it can interfere with your hormones. Actually, it can create other issues and, and, and affect other hormones in the body, like your thyroid gland, for example, or your progesterone and estrogen balance as well. So tell us about menopause uh, as weight gain, excuse me, as it relates to menopause and what women can do about it. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of different factors that come into play. Um, It's very complex. That's why so many people struggle with it. Um, One of the reasons why women, uh, a lot of women start gaining weight around the time of menopause is because as your estrogen levels decline, um, then often, very, very often uh, women become insulin resistant. Um, so insulin is your, your blood sugar hormone. Um, so, um, uh, so, you know, imbalances in, in blood sugar levels, um, can definitely contribute to weight gain. Also, like I mentioned earlier, uh, loss of muscle mass. So less testosterone, less muscle. Um, women tend to lose muscle as they go through menopause and that will, um, lower your metabolism because muscle cells require so much energy to keep, you know, functioning. If you have less muscle, then you need less calories. Um, so that's another one. Also, your uh, a lot of women around the time of menopause also develop a thyroid issue. Um, that's very, very common. Um, that will also slow your metabolism down as well. And then also, as you get older, your calorie needs change. And I I think um, it's kind of hard to kind of understand that, you know, because you've been, you know, eating a certain way for, for so long. Um, so if you need less calories and you're still eating like you were in your 20s, then you're going to gain weight, unfortunately. So, yeah, it's a very complex situation there. And but- I didn't I didn't know about the thyroid being so impact or possibly impacted with menopause. So is it like a specific condition like a Hashimoto's or is it just a general thought? Like what exactly happens with the thyroid? This is something I wasn't aware of. Just in general, um, 
most women who are diagnosed with a thyroid issue, such as hypothyroidism, you know, when your thyroid is underactive, is usually around the time of menopause. Um, so that they both rear their ugly heads, right? Um, and Hashimoto's is is huge. There's so many people with Hashimoto's. Uh, for those who aren't aware, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune type of thyroid uh, disease. So that's when your your body basically attacks itself. Um, so it starts breaking down those thyroid cells and then eventually um, your thyroid isn't producing enough hormone. So you have to go on medication. Um, so Hashimoto's is, is, a, is a big one. I'm actually writing my next book on thyroid right now. We'll be on the lookout for that. With weight gain, there are a couple of tips that you provided, and I thought it would be helpful to highlight them. So one is the sugar-free revolution. Um, artificial sweeteners, uh, I just wish they didn't exist. <laughs> um, the problem with artificial sweeteners is the way that your body digests them, um, your body will actually see them as sugar, even though they're not. So your blood sugar levels may not spike, but there's also bacteria in your intestinal tract and your gut um, called the microbiome um, that will see artificial sweeteners as sugar, basically. So there's a lot of research going on right now on that, um, how your body reacts to, to these chemicals. Um, uh, I wish they did away with them. <laughs> so stevia is okay then for those who like stevia. Is that okay? It's okay. Um, there stevia um there are some really overprocessed stevia products out there so um just keep that in mind but the more natural the less processed the better okay well that's helpful see again it's all about the marketing there are there are times when I, I i'm a label reader there are times when i'm running around and i forget to read the label and then i'm like you marketers you got me i can't I believe this is an ingredient <laughs> i know they make it look really like earthy you know a little green leaf here and it's <laughs> like <laughs> totally toxic so and what about the fog the brain fog tell us about the brain fog because I hear a lot about that as well mm -hmm. yeah so that can happen during any like phase of a woman's life um there are a lot of women premenopausal women who have brain fog who for example their bodies are producing too much estrogen and not enough progesterone it's called um estrogen uh, excess, basically, estrogen dominance, uh, which I mentioned in the book as well. Um, so that can happen. It happens when, whenever there's any kind of hormonal imbalance. Um, that's why I mentioned the premenopause uh, phase as well. And then perimenopause is, you know, your, your hormones are going on a roller coaster ride. Sometimes women will get brain fog as well. And then, of course, um, uh, postmenopausal um, too. Uh, one bioidentical hormone that can be really helpful with brain fog is actually testosterone. So I do have really, yeah, yeah. So I do have a lot of women who are premenopausal, um, who are actually like pretty low in testosterone, um, and will replace that, and they tend to feel better and they feel like they can think a little bit more clearly. Um, so it's something to keep in mind. Um, also, brain fog. Um, so things that you can do besides testosterone to improve that is, is increasing the blood flow through the body. Um, so exercise, definitely helpful. Getting more oxygen to the brain, to those brain cells that need it um, as well, that can help. 
for the low testosterone, do you need to test for that? So, you know, I guess I, I never really thought about it until you're just talking is, you know, with, with so many of the interviews that I've done, it's a specific condition someone may have. And so obviously you need to do diagnostics to be able to treat. And menopause, let's all agree, it is not a condition. It is a life stage. However, you may need to understand what may be causing certain symptoms that are distracting to daily living. So when it comes to, to menopause, do you also have to do diagnostic testing? And if so, what would you recommend? Because like, I think what also triggered it too is when you said the low testosterone. So how would you know it's the low testosterone? Because I've also read that you know, there's certain types of tests that you need to take. It's not just, you know, like even with, you know, thyroid, it's not just TSH, you know, sometimes that doesn't give you the full picture. So tell us more about the role of diagnostics and helping the women sort through these symptoms. So before treating anyone with bioidentical hormones, I always do test. I always test first um, because symptoms overlap. So what, what, what some what someone might be complaining of symptom wise, it could be either a symptom of low estrogen or maybe their thyroid's not functioning well. So I always check, I do a pretty big panel, a pretty big workup where I am checking a full thyroid, you know, with TSH and free T3 and free T4 and their estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and, and all these things. I do a pretty good workup um, before I put them on anything to see if there's other issues going on. Um, also, women who are perimenopausal who are going on this hormonal roller coaster, um, sometimes you know they have a lot of estrogen going on, and sometimes they don't have enough. You kind of need to see where they are um, before giving them something. I always say test, don't guess. Um, so testing is definitely important. I do hear of other providers who don't do blood work and they just base it off of the symptoms. Um, but I've had patients who've come from them with issues uh, where their estrogen levels are really, really high and it's causing um, some issues um, with their uterine lining, uh, especially. So definitely get tested. Um, I do most of my testing through blood, using blood. Um, there are some saliva tests out there as well that you can do from home. Um, from like ZRT labs as uh, one of the labs that you can actually just buy the kit from. And, um, but I do, I do prefer um, using blood, using blood over saliva. There's also urine testing as well, like the Dutch test. Um, if you go to their website, they have the kits as well. Um, but it also depends on what I'm checking. Uh, for example, if someone does have very low testosterone and they're um, premenopausal, they're still getting their periods uh, regularly most of the time, then I'll suspect that maybe there's also an issue going on with their adrenal glands um, because your adrenal glands um, not only make testosterone, but they also make um, DHEA and, and, and other hormones as well. Um, so I'll test for adrenal fatigue using a saliva test because um, that's the best way to check your cortisol levels throughout the course of a day instead of just at one time point when you have a needle in your arm, which is obviously going to spike your cortisol level. Nobody likes getting their blood drawn, right? Um, so it just kind of depends on, on what we're testing, but uh, I usually do a full workup before putting anyone on anything. Okay. No, that's helpful. And I, I appreciate your explanation too about the testing for cortisol. I know this is something that uh, there's um, some companies out there who are also doing this with progesterone where you know, from the fertility world, it's test on day 21. <laughs> and they're, you know, actually the levels do change. And so that impacts trying to get pregnant. So 
you know, and I ask these questions because I, I want women to know, like, providers are all different. They have different training and different beliefs, and there's not a lot of data. And so it's important to be aware of what to ask for. Like, I went to a provider and I asked for more than TSH, and it was an argument. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt like I was this mean, bullying patient asking for what I knew I needed. And, um, you know, so, so I appreciate your reinforcement and some of the nuances too around what type of test. So, so you mentioned the uh, saliva for cortisol, right? Saliva, saliva. for Yeah. It's called a diurethral um, cortisol test. Okay. Um, because it'll check your cortisol levels throughout the course of the day. And it kind of gives me like a curve effect. Um, okay. so if there's a, like a difference in the curve, then I can kind of tell what's going on that way. Okay. And then, so there's, you know, a lot of wonderful companies who are developing these at-home tests. So tell us your thoughts around where the blood work versus the urine versus saliva tests come into play and how you use that to help determine the best treatments for women. And I think we all agree blood work is best, but, mm -hmm. you know, again, it, it doesn't sound like you're saying it's, it's terrible to do these others. So I think it would just be helpful to have perspective. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not against saliva or urine tests um, at all. Um, in fact, I do have a lot of patients who, uh, especially right now, like while things are, everything's yeah. going on, people don't want to go out. Um, they don't want to go get their blood drawn. Um, then I'll actually recommend they just do the kit at home and then I'll get the results um, from that. Um, so yeah, I'm not definitely not against saliva and urine testing. Um, Blood, I think blood testing is kind of the gold standard, but those other kits work great. Okay. Um, they, are, they are something that you can actually um, purchase online and do yourself. Um, but if you want it, you know, interpreted through a medical provider, then you'd have to find somebody to do that for you. I don't recommend WebMDing anything or trying to diagnose. That's never a good idea. <laughs> um, but some of the labs will kind of give you a general idea of what's going on um, so that you can take that and go find a provider who's willing to work with you. Um, if you, you know, suspect something's off, um, they can definitely use that. Okay, no, that's helpful. And then a couple more questions from the Facebook group. So one is, and again, I know that you don't have the full medical history. So um, from just a pure, like, if this happens, what should someone do and consider? Um, I think maybe let's just put, it, put that out there that you're not gonna be able to diagnose. Um, but one had shared that they were bleeding for over 20 days and wondering if that is normal. I think we would all agree, especially by the look on your face, that that's not normal. But any, any thoughts on what might be going on, what this person should do to try to get answers? It's definitely not normal. Um, I have to see you know, how old they are and if they, you know, their medical history. Um, but I can tell you some reasons why a woman, sure. why they should definitely go get that checked. That's not normal. Um, so there could be some kind of underlying issue um, in their endometrium, um, maybe some fibroids. Uh, so little cysts, you know, in there that will cause bleeding. Also, uh, when endometriosis as well, when you have abnormal tissues um, in that same area will cause bleeding as well. Um, if she's on hormone replacement therapy and there's an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone, that could cause some bleeding as well, either spotting or a full-on uh, period too. Um, and then, you know, I hate to say it, but like uterine cancer would be, be another one. So definitely go 
go see a GYN for that. It's okay. Okay. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Hopefully it's not the last one. No. Um, and then what, I, I was, I always tell everyone every possible, um, outcome, but I have to say that's, that's rare. Yeah. Um, the most common that I see are fibroids. Um, okay. That's less scary. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Yes. Now, joint pain. So is this something that is potentially something that happens when you are going through perimenopause or menopause? Or is this something that could that is probably separate and they would just need to go to a clinician to better understand it? So um, it, it could be something that they had before, like arthritis. Um, but if they're going through menopause and their, their hormone levels are dropping, then it can trigger that it can make it worse um, because they their body becomes inflamed. So when you're when you have a, a drop in estrogen, for example, then you have you develop some inflammation in the body. So that can definitely you know affect the joints and make it more painful. Um, so yeah, maybe get that checked out. Maybe get your hormones checked out, and if those are good, then um, you could definitely you know take some things to relieve the inflammation um, to make it feel better. Okay, thank you. So I will bring up one one thought that I didn't cover because um, I didn't want to get back to the food since we had dropped that topic. But I, I will say one interesting point you brought up about organic food because you had mentioned organic earlier is that you know it's expensive and how can people afford them? And one of the points you brought up is that you know it's really a long term investment because if you're not eating organic, the impact of what it can have on your life. Um, is, you know, is, is huge. Maybe you can tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, it is an investment in, in your health. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, additives in our food and, you know, the way our, our fruits and vegetables are grown and our, our meat is um, raised. Um, there, there are plenty of things like toxic chemicals that come into our food and, and, this is kind of controversial because, you know, through testing, they say, well, it's just a small amount, just a small amount. But the thing is, is that small amounts build up, you know, in the body, uh, your, your body can store things. Um, so it is important to buy organic. And I do hear, you know, people who are concerned about the, the cost. Um, and sometimes I'll just recommend if they can't afford to buy everything in organic, um, focus on the big ones. So the big ones are definitely, if you're an egg person, uh, organic eggs are very important, uh, poultry as well, your meat products. Um, there are some things that you can kind of get away with, things that you don't eat as much of, like for spices, spices exam, for example, you're not using a lot of that. Um, so um, if you can't afford to buy everything organic, that's something that you can kind of typically forego. Um, but yeah, I do, I do mention that in the book and, and also other things in our environment too, such as skincare products and things that we clean our houses with that our bodies are coming in contact with things that are affecting our hormones. Um, uh, xenoestrogens is, is the word for some of them, uh, that will kind of mimic the effects of estrogen in the body and kind of trick our bodies into thinking, um, that they're producing maybe too much when they're not. Wow. No, that's really important to note. And, you know, it's funny, I will say, like, I've really transitioned to eating a much healthier lifestyle. And as you were talking, I realized I don't really eat a lot of snacks in the middle. I'm not as hungry. I think when you really have it balanced, it may seem like 
a lot of money up front, but I, I think between the lowered healthcare costs down the road because you're staying healthy, but also there's not as much of the junk food and snacking. So perhaps you're buying less food because now you're eating right. So your body feels fulfilled. Um, I mean, maybe it's not an exact, you know, mirror where it's like exactly the same amount of dollars. So in the moment, it might feel like a really expensive grocery bill, but I would imagine if you really looked at all the costs, right? The snacks are the most expensive part. You know, all the processed foods, even if it's, you know, the organic ones are, they're pricey. They're yep. pricey. Spend, you know, $7 on a box of crackers, you know, easily. <laughs> um, yep. No, it's very, very so true. Putting that out, it uh, can definitely help with your wallet and also your waste. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all definitely important factors. Well, thank you again for, you know, using all the wisdom that you have to help educate our listeners and for writing your book. Cause I think, again, it's a, it's a great read, you know, very simple, but extremely helpful tips. And at the very least will prepare women to be able to have the, those good conversations with their clinician to help relieve these symptoms for a very important life stage that we all go through. Um, so as a, as a parting note, is there any, what would you like to say as far as your greatest hope for women's health? Um, I guess just kind of, becoming more aware of their options and um, learning how to talk to their medical providers about, um, you know, alternatives or, you know, more of an integrative approach as well. Um, and finding, trying to find the root cause of things rather than just putting a bandaid on it. That's what I hope for our listeners. Good, good tip. Well, thank you, Dr. Krissa. It's been a true pleasure. And I know that our listeners will get a lot out of this. And thank you again to the listeners for posing your questions, because this is what really helps make sure that we cover the topics that are of most interest to you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.